I'm Po Yi, a partner in Manette's advertising, marketing, and media practice, and this is Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manette. We've been able to cover so many different topics this year on the podcast, from loyalty programs to CFPB enforcement updates, state privacy laws and agency-client relationships, and most recently, supply chain issues. All top issues and opportunities facing advertisers and marketers in 2021. For our final episode of this year, I asked a few of my Manat colleagues to join me to discuss a few other important developments in 2021 and to provide some insights into what lies ahead in the new year. Before I jump into today's lineup, I want to quickly remind you that we would love to continue hearing from you. Please feel free to fill out the topic request or question form located on the landing page for this episode to submit questions or topics you'd like to learn more about in 2022. Now, I'd like to introduce today's guests. Returning again for today's episode are my partners, Jesse Brody and Jeff Edelstein from Manat's Advertising, Marketing, and Media Practice. Jeff will be diving into a recent NAD decision regarding consumer reviews and product rankings. And Jesse will be discussing an interesting class action lawsuit involving popular voting and contests, as well as the recent Quebec registration changes for global sweepstakes and contests. We also have two other guests for today's episode, both from our digital and technology group. Matt Reese, counsel in the digital and technology transactions practice, has returned to provide an update on name, image, and likeness developments for student athletes. Finally, we'll be joined by Ned Sherman, partner and leader of our digital and technology transactions practice, and he will discuss the trends in the evolving space of games, esports streamers, influencers, and digital entertainment. To get started today, I'd like to turn to my first guest, Jeff Edelstein. Jeff, it's good to have you join me again. The NAD has been quite active this year and has made a number of important decisions, including the most recent one about incentivized consumer reviews and product rankings. Can you tell us about this decision? Smile Direct Club challenged claims by Straight Smile for its Bite Teeth Aligner products. The Bite website contained video and written reviews by consumers and had a disclosure stating, quote, we've asked our reviewers to share the good, the bad, and the ugly with us. These reviews may include ones where no one purchasers were given free product in exchange for their honest opinions, close quote. The disclosure thus indicated that some reviews were by consumers who received free product, but did not identify those reviews. So Jeff, these reviews that Smile Direct Club challenged were incentivized reviews. Well, some were, but not all. And that was the problem. Some of the reviews were incentivized. That is, the reviewers received a free product or some other form of compensation, and some were not. But there was no indication as to which of the reviews were incentivized and which were not. The NAD noted that both the Federal Trade Commission and the NAD have long held that any material connection between an advertiser and a reviewer must be clearly disclosed. When a reviewer is paid by the advertiser in some way, such as receiving free product, that is a material connection that must be disclosed. The NAD determined that when there are multiple reviews on a website, a single blanket disclosure is not sufficient to put consumers on notice that a review has been incentivized. The NAD then recommended that the advertiser provide a disclosure for each incentivized review on its website, informing consumers that the review was incentivized. This decision also addressed other issues related to consumer reviews. Am I right? That's right. The NAD also addressed consumer reviews on a third-party website 
bestcompany.com. The advertiser argued that it is not responsible for the content on a third-party website, including how an independent third party discloses incentivized reviews. The NED disagreed, since the advertiser paid Best Company to solicit reviews and had a relationship with Best Company to promote its products. The NED stated that it is well settled that an advertiser is responsible for its own advertising, even if distributed by a third party. When Best Company promotes Byte's products as a result of Byte's relationship with Best Company, it is advertising for Byte. The NED determined that there should be a disclosure for each incentivized review on the Best Company website as with the Byte website. What about the product rankings shown on these review sites? That was also an issue in the case. Bestcompany.com has consumer reviews in various product categories, including invisible braces, as well as product rankings. The website ranked Byte the best in several areas, including best overall. NED found that the rankings for invisible braces on bestcompany.com are influenced by the relationship between Best Company and the companies it is ranking. Apparently, companies listed on bestcompany.com could pay for additional services, such as the solicitation of additional reviews and the creation of ads, articles, and videos. Companies with a relationship with Best Company got a higher ranking not based on the experience of consumers with the product, but because the relationship with Best Company will increase the metrics that form the basis of the rankings. Therefore, the NED ruled that a general disclosure on the Best Company website that it may get compensated by some companies was not sufficient and recommended that by either discontinue advertising its ranking on bestcompany.com or modify the advertising to ensure that consumers understand that the best company's ranking is advertising for Byte and not an honest review from an independent third party. Thanks, Jeff, for sharing your insights on this NAD decision. Now let's move on to another topic, sweepstakes and contests. For this, I'd like to call on my colleague, Jesse Brody. Jesse, we've had a number of interesting legal developments in the sweepstakes and contest space this year. In particular, fan voting was a subject of a class action lawsuit related to Crow Vote's favorite chef contest. Could you tell us about that case? Back in June, Bridget and Lisa Ward filed a class action lawsuit against Crow Vote and celebrity chef Edward Matney. The complaint alleges that the favorite chef contest promoted by the defendants was actually an illegal sweepstakes. What was alleged in the complaint is that the defendants hosted a contest with the goal of declaring who is the world's favorite chef. To participate in the contest, anyone could create a public profile on the Favorite Chef website and ask for people to vote for them. Whomever obtained the most votes at the end of each round of voting would proceed to the next round until a winner was declared. It was advertised that the winning chef would receive the title of world's favorite chef, $50,000, and be featured in a two-page advertisement in Bon Appetit magazine. The public could cast one free vote per day for their preferred chefs, but only through their respective Facebook account. People could also buy extra votes to push their favorite chefs toward victory. Plaintiffs alleged that there was no actual contest taking place due to the fact that the contestants were not being judged on their cooking skills, but only moving up in the standings based on their popularity. As alleged in the complaint, theoretically it was possible for someone with no cooking skill at all to win, simply by having others spend the most money to obtain the most votes. Using fan public voting in a promotion is a common practice. What are the key issues highlighted in this lawsuit? 
The first thing to consider is whether this promotion should be considered a contest, a sweepstakes, or a lottery. A lottery consists of three elements, prize, chance, and consideration. Of course, if skill replaces the element of chance, a lottery can become a legal contest. If consideration is removed, a lottery can become a legal sweepstakes. In some circumstances, sweepstakes sponsors may accept some form of consideration, provided they also offer a free alternative method of entry. In the case at hand, although there's the illusion that the skill of the chef determines the winner of the contest, the winner is actually determined by the chance of people voting for him or her. Alternatively, if this promotion is viewed as a sweepstakes, it's arguable whether consideration has been removed. The consideration at issue was paid by a third party voter and not the actual contestants, but the plaintiffs argue that the consideration was not removed. Contestants would not have had a chance of winning at all without the soliciting and obtaining of paid votes. If it's determined by the court that consideration was not removed, that the ability to vote for free only through a Facebook account was not an acceptable alternative method of entry, the favorite chef contest could be considered an illegal lottery. What can advertisers do to avoid these issues when incorporating fan voting in their winner selection process? You should keep the following in mind. If public voting is used in skill contests, it may inject the element of chance. This could be a problem if you're trying to avoid conducting an illegal lottery or registration and bonding in certain states. Public voting is even more problematic if a fee or purchase is required as seen in the favorite chef lawsuit. Public voting can also be problematic because the public may not be qualified to apply the judging criteria or may choose not to properly apply the criteria. The submissions may not be subject to an equal viewing and judging by all judges and public voters. And entrants could influence the results by requesting votes from others, making the promotion more of a popularity contest rather than a skill contest. To minimize risks associated with public voting, I recommend that contest sponsors limit the impact of public voting on the outcome by having the judges also view the entries and have them select the winners along with the public voters. That would make the public voting count for only a portion of the total score that will determine the ultimate winners. Also, it's important to instruct voters to apply the same judging criteria used by the actual judges or other criteria that the public may be an expert in, such as public appeal. Sponsors could also limit the number of times each member of the public can vote on an entry, such as requiring registration on a website to vote and prevent each user from voting on entries more than one time per day or per month. Jesse, these are good tips to remember. Let's talk about another key development in sweepstakes and contests. It's common for sweepstakes that is open to Canadian residents to exclude Quebec. With the recent change in Quebec's registration requirement, should a U.S. company running a sweepstakes in the U.S. and Canada stop worrying about Quebec and allow Quebec residents to participate? Great question. First thing to consider is that sweepstakes overall are not legal generally in Canada, only skill contests. That's why you'll often see the addition of a skill testing question required for Canadian winners of a chance-based sweepstakes. By adding this skill-based requirement, it transforms the sweepstakes into a legal contest in Canada. And you're right, the province of Quebec is the only jurisdiction in Canada that administers a registration regime for contests. Up until recently, all contests open to Quebec residents with pricing worth more than $100 needed to be registered with the Quebec regulator, along with the payment of fees. These requirements were in addition to post-contest filing of winner information and the obligation to post security with the regulator for high-value prizes. Unfortunately, these rules were often perceived by sponsors as too complicated, particularly for those managing a global campaign. Many sponsors choose to simply void eligibility in Quebec 
instead of engaging in the registration process, much to the disappointment of potential entrants from Quebec. Over the summer, the Quebec legislature quietly passed changes, removing the application of the requirements to international contests. Now, contests or sweepstakes that are open to Quebec entrants are not subject to any of the regulatory requirements if they're also open to entrants from outside of Canada. This means that no registration or fees are required for international contests. The requirements will continue to apply to contests that are open in Quebec only or that are open to Canadians, but not internationally. Be aware, however, that the Quebec regulator might continue to take jurisdiction over some international contests with stronger ties to Quebec, such as contests that can only be entered into from within Quebec physically, like an in-person event happening in Quebec. The Quebec regulator may also take jurisdiction if the sponsor's primary commercial interests are in Quebec, regardless of international eligibility. In terms of other continuing requirements for Quebec residents, Quebec's French language laws are, of course, separate from this change and continue to require contest rules, advertising, and entry platforms to be translated into French for the Quebec market. Thank you, Jesse. This is definitely good news for advertisers wanting to run a global sweepstakes or contest, even with the continuing French language requirement. For this next segment, I'd like to ask Matt Reese to share an update on NIL rights for student-athletes. Matt, you and I spoke earlier this year just as the NCAA amateurism rules were being relaxed and several new state rules on NIL rights for student-athletes were going into effect. We've now had six months of NIL. What have we learned? Well, first, Paul, thanks for having me uh, back again. Well, we knew going into July that there would be a lot of variation across states and colleges from a regulatory standpoint because of the rather ad hoc last minute way the regulatory scheme came together. So now at year's end, the upshot is that 28 states have name image likeness specific laws with consistent themes, but different details. Uh, The NCAA still has an interim policy that waives the endorsement restriction in its bylaws. And regardless of jurisdiction, colleges and universities have leeway and responsibility for developing and enforcing their own policies. Most colleges across the, the three NCAA divisions have put policies in place, but they can vary widely in important respects, even within the same state. So what you're saying is that there's more diligence to do on NIL deals than other endorsements? I think that's a fair way of summing it up. I mean, the opportunity is definitely there for a whole new class of brand ambassadors and the opportunity is real, but it takes a bit more diligence and flexibility in the contract than if you're doing a deal with a non-student athlete. What specific due diligence do you recommend that brands engage in before working with a student athlete? I think it's important for brands as they're, as they're looking to do deals with student athletes to, to look first at the state level and see if there's a state name image likeness law and what that law requires. Then you know, the NCA interim policy essentially bars recruitment inducement and pay to play, which is not as big a, an impediment for a brand. But then the the next real step is to have a look at the school policies and see specifically what uh, is necessary in terms of contract disclosure to the school, the timing of that contract disclosure, whether there's a policy against any 
conflicts with current school deals, you know, whether there are any other policies that may be at the school level that might jeopardize the student athlete's eligibility to participate and still do the NIL deal. Do you think we will see nationwide regulations or industry standards on NIL anytime soon? I think it's certainly possible, but most likely not at least until the end of the academic year would be my bet. Um, you know, now that it's been set in motion, uh, there will be the opportunity and it would be a great time at the end of the academic year to look at the deals that were actually reported to the colleges and to test those and see whether specific state laws have had a different impact on NIL deals versus deals in states with no NIL laws as well as to see whether the school policies actually address issues that that are coming up in NIL deals that are actually completed. I think with that information, then you can have a look and see whether further regulation is necessary, either at the federal NCAA or, or conference levels. In addition to potential changes, based on all of the learnings from one year of having NIL, anything else to look out for in 2022? I expect to see a couple of of trends emerging uh, as the market evolves. I think we'll see increasing efforts to to match athletes to brands and whether that's being done by technology platforms, brand efforts, or even by schools and conferences themselves. And I'm also interested to see how the opportunity develops in in divisions two and three, not just division one, whether college athletes in those divisions offer a better value, as well as whether more niche sports prove valuable, and then what mix there might be between local and national brands. And then I I think a a third theme will be whether there will be an effort to find ways, and I think there will be, to make NIL a benefit to colleges instead of just a compliance burden. I think the expectation is that with the ability to budget and plan Colleges will start to undertake efforts to combine student name image likeness deals with institution deals and look to use in ways that are, of course, compliant with NIL rules, Title IX and other regulations, use those student NIL deals for recruitment, local fan engagement and alumni engagement. Matt, thanks for this insight and for returning to our program once again. Listeners, if you are interested in learning more about the key considerations for NIL student-athlete deals across the country, Matt has compiled a 50-state survey that examines the patchwork and multi-layer regulatory structure. You can access that complimentary downloadable insight on the landing page for today's episode. For our final segment today, I'd like to welcome Ned Sherman to share more about what's happening in the games, esports, and content creator space. Ned, welcome to our podcast. This is your very first time, but I hope to have you back many, many more times. In the past year, you've handled a number of notable deals involving games and esports streamers, influencers, and culture and lifestyle companies. What's going on in this rapidly evolving space? Oh, it's great to be on the show. Yes, it certainly is an exciting space right now, and it's one that I think we can expect to see continued growth. The past year was particularly dynamic for a number of factors that kind of converged to create this almost perfect storm for growth in the sector. On the one hand, there was 
uh, unprecedented growth in the number of global gamers continue, continue kind of at this impressive rate of about 5.4% annually. We now have about 3 billion gamers worldwide as of the end of, of 2021. And that was coupled with the continued growth of live streaming platforms like Twitch and Facebook and gaming environments like Fortnite, Roblox, Minecraft. It's driven rise to kind of this renewed excitement around connecting people and virtual environments through the metaverse, which you've probably been hearing a lot about. And it's created a dynamic that I think is really attractive to brand marketers who need to read this coveted youth demographic. Yes, I've been hearing a lot about the metaverse, but I'm not sure that a lot of people really understand what the metaverse is. So what is it? And what happened in 2021 that is causing so much excitement around it? Yeah, I mean, I think that the word gets thrown around a lot these days. At its core, the concept of the metaverse, it's it's not a new one. Many credit Neil Stephenson's sci-fi classic Snow Crash to popularizing the term back in 1992. And I think last year, or this year, 2021, we've seen really a groundswell of interest led by major media tech companies and investment groups and VCs. It's really been attracting like some of our, the brightest minds in the industry to launch new ventures. Some are startups, some are been, have been launched in-house at bigger companies, focused on bringing the concept to life kind of in new ways. You know, there's a lot of components to that, but I think kind of at its core, what we're seeing is a focus on developing kind of massive virtual worlds and experiences where users can have identities, they can interact with each other, they might be able to work, learn, create, shop, they could even watch concerts, you know, we've seen some really big concerts in Fortnite and in Roblox, they can hang out and do a lot of other things that people are doing in, in real life. So You know, I mean, what this kind of leads to for our audience here is that brand marketers are taking note and they're starting to launch their own initiatives focused on creating branded experience in some of these environments. It's fascinating how quickly things are developing with games and virtual worlds. I just can't keep up. Let's talk about another buzzword of 2021, NFT. How are NFTs fitting into all this? I know, Paul. I mean, and and this it's a great, great question. At its core, an NFT or non-fungible token, it really took off at the start of 2021. And I think this was really in part due to its enormous success that you saw with NBA Top Shot, which is a blockchain-based trading card system that just generated hundreds of millions of revenue in this year alone. But an NFT, to your question, is it's a digital asset. And it could be really anything digital. It could be an artwork, it could be music, photos, videos, avatars. What people are doing is NFTs are units of data that are being stored on a blockchain. They're available to be sold and traded. So there's a big secondary market for NFTs. And back to kind of where we started the conversation with games and virtual worlds, they're becoming a really key component within new blockchain game development. What I'm also seeing kind of from the brand perspective is brands are big IP owners and they're, they're finding that, you know, moving into this space and brands are often first movers is really important right now. And it, it can also create revenue generating opportunities. NFTs are certainly conversation starters, which means a great opportunity for brand engagement. With 2021 having been such a significant year of growth for games and digital entertainment, what's there to look out for in 2022? I'm quite excited about it. I'm super excited about it. Really, I see 2022 as a continuation of this massive shift 
away from traditional media and towards the creator economy. We talk a lot about this at Manat, and I expect that we're going to see continued rollout of new business models, tech tools, solutions that are focused on creators, influencers, and user-generated content, and are a way to connect these virtual environments we've been talking about with the goal of creating a bigger metaverse where users have identities and can create content, interact with each other kind of across the broader web. I mean, this is kind of the thinking behind the metaverse and web 3.0. So my advice is that for all the brand marketers out there, this is a really exciting time. It's going to give new rise or give rise to new levels of engagement with fans and customers. And we're already seeing a lot of brands that are out there on the forefront of what's going on. Ned, I so appreciate hearing your thoughts on this burgeoning space. And I look forward to having further and deeper conversations about all of these topics in a future episode. Thank you to all our guests, Jeff, Jesse, Matt, and Ned, for joining me on today's program. And thank you, listeners, for joining us once again on Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. Please visit this episode's landing page to access contact information for all of our guests today and additional resources related to the topics discussed in this episode. Now, we all know that 2021 has been a year of highs and lows, challenges and opportunities. With the new year in mind, I wanted to end this episode by playing a special song for all of our listeners. Happy New Year to all. We look forward to exploring more topics on Perfect Balance in 2022. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. The views expressed on the podcast reflect the personal views and opinions of the participants and are not intended to constitute legal advice or counsel under any circumstance. Downloading and listening to this recording do not result in the formation of an attorney-client or other business relationship. You should not act on any information in the podcast without seeking the advice of a competent attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction. 